Hi, I'm Zena Garrison, and you're listening to Brothers on Tennis. Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? This is your boy, Isaac. And this is your boy, Bryce. And we are Brothers on Tennis. And folks, we've got another good one for you. We have got a guest that is, man, we are so excited to talk to this particular person. I mean, she has done so much for the game of tennis, and we are just excited to learn about her story and to, you know, allow her to share with you her path of getting to where she's been. And 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 Bryce, I know you you'll fill us in on, on some of the great stats of our our, our our guest here. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Thank you, Isaac. If you are not familiar with Katrina Adams, you are definitely familiar with her work. Yes. And um, I just want to give just a very quick highlight of her background to bring everyone up to speed. She's originally from Chicago, a two-time All-American at Northwestern University. She had an 11-year pro career that yielded 20 tour-level doubles titles, and she had a career high ranking in doubles of eight. We remember her days as a tennis commentator, but currently she is the immediate past president chairperson and CEO of the United States Tennis Association. Having already served two consecutive terms as the USTA president, chairperson, and CEO. And I believe she was the first to do that and also the youngest. She is currently the chairperson of the ITF Fed Cup and Gender Equality and Tennis Committees. And one of the things we really love is how she gives back to the community as an executive director for the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program in New York. So without any further ado, we welcome Katrina Adams. Yay. Hi, Katrina. How are you? Thanks for having me, guys. Excellent. We are so, so excited to talk with you. Welcome to Brothers on Tennis. And uh, I guess first and foremost, Katrina, we want to talk with you about just how are you doing personally? I know that we had kind of, uh, with everything going on with the pandemic and, and the coronavirus, you were actually uh, one that was stricken with that. So kind of want to find out how you're doing and, 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 and how you're feeling and, and just make sure that you, you, our sister, are doing well. So how are things going? Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a long year. It's been a tough year. Uh, I did have uh, COVID, COVID-19. Fortunately for me, though, I had a small or a, a minor case. I won't say small because it's still a case. Right. Um, I only had the body aches and I never got any of the other symptoms. I didn't, I wasn't hospitalized or anything like that. But, um, you know, the recovery was, was really about a week to 10 days of just being really lethargic, really tired. Um, as if I'd run a marathon every day and, and I hate running. So, <laughs> right. painful. um, but you know, I'm good, fully recovered. I, I have strong antibodies. I've been able to donate plasma a couple times. I have a couple more appointments coming up to, uh, donate my plasma in, in hopes of, of saving someone's life. And, um, so I'm good, you know, it's, uh, I've, I've been fortunate. I always say things happen for a reason. And, and, and I look at that as a, the, the negative side of getting it uh, was one thing, but the positive side to be able to contribute and, and save, save someone's life means a lot to me. 
Absolutely. And we are just so thankful that you are recovered and, and feeling, feeling better. And, and again, that you're doing that donation because man, this coronavirus is just, it's, it's terrifying in a sense. Yeah, and there's just so many things and so many unknowns out there. So to be able to hear that, even though you had a mild case, that you were able to get past that and, 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 and start feeling better. It's, it's, it, it goes a very, very long way. So we are very happy to hear you're doing well. Thank you. Good, good, good. So just jumping in, uh, Katrina, I wanted to just kind of ask you just about the sport of tennis in general and how you got your start. I mean, we've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing Zena and Chanda and talking with them about kind of how they got started and how the racket got in their hands. So very interested to hear from you. How did you get your start in tennis? How did how did you find this great sport of ours? Yeah, and I was really fortunate. I'm going to first start by saying this story can be found in my book that will be released in March of 2021. Yes. So you can learn a lot more about this and, and other topics. But, you know, I was very lucky. I was six going on seven. Um, I stumbled on the sport. My brothers were in, you know, the, the summer activity, if you will, um, through the boys. Then it was just a boys club. Um, now Boys and Girls Club, but the Martin Luther King Boys Club that was in Chicago. Every summer they had a different activity. This that particular summer was tennis. They were in the program. They were it was for ages nine to eighteen. My parents were working, so I was a tag along sister um, who was an ultimate tomboy and and had great eye <laughs> coordination already because uh, I used to play a lot of sports with my oldest brother. Um, and, and after watching, sitting outside the fence for two weeks and begging and, and watching because I was a visual learner, when I did get the opportunity to go on the court, put a racket in my hand and feel the ball and the racket on the strings, you know, I, I fell in love with it from the start and, um, and, and had great support from a coach, Tony Fox, and uh, the coaches, Tony Fox and Kim Williams for that summer program to where... Tony took me under his wing once that uh, program was over and, and kind of the rest is history. It was just uh, one thing after another with a lot of people supporting me and, and creating opportunities for me to c continue in the sport. Fantastic. Now, did you play any junior events when you were coming up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, okay. I went through the whole system. So, you know, my first tournament uh, actually was the following summer, and it was at ATA Nationals down in New Orleans. So... My very first tournament, you know, we drove 12 hours, uh, you know, my mom, dad, and myself down to New Orleans. And in the first tournament, you know, ATA Nationals, I'm playing 10 and unders as a, I think I just turned eight by then uh, in that, that August. But, uh, you know, when I was introduced to the sport, I thought the sport was black because my, my <laughs> was black that summer, my coach was black. My program the following summer was black. My first tournament was black. I was like, yo, what's up? All <laughs> right. And, and then the fall came or, you know, the next year came and I started playing local tournaments. And then I was like the only black. And I was like, what happened? <laughs> like, right? Um, where the folk? I was like, where's everybody at? So, um, but yeah, no, I played, I played. Uh, ATA all throughout my juniors, and I played uh, USCA juniors um, from Chicago. So it was a Chicago District Tennis Association acronym CDTA. I played all CDTA tournaments. Um, a couple years later, I was already qualifying for sectionals um, and ultimately nationals. I was playing nationals at, at the age of 10. Um, 
so yeah, I came up through the junior ranks. I played high school tennis and, and college tennis. Right on. That is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, when you were when you, when you noticed that subtle difference <laughs> as far as playing with the folk and then not seeing any folks, what did that do for you? Is just in regards to like your drive or getting out there and you know competing. Did that did that change your mindset at all, or how did how did you think about that? I'm just curious. Yeah, I really don't know because I think I was just too young to understand it. Oh, gotcha. Too young to even recognize it. I mean, you know, as you get older and you reflect back, and you know, when you, you start writing a book, you start doing a lot of reflection and, and, and realizing what was important to you. But um, you know, my parents didn't. You know, they raised us to to love everyone and to be around everyone. Um, they had white colleagues at school. We used to go over to their homes, and you know, their kids. We we played with their kids, and and so that wasn't really different for me. Uh, I, I would say it was different as far as going to my first tournament and, and I'm the only black now. But, you know, my parents, I'm sure, prepared me and probably had to talk with me um, as we were going out into the suburban areas. But I didn't, I, you know, I was a kid who loved to play tennis and who loved to win. So I didn't really care who was on the court with me. It was mm-hmm. as long as I was out there and, and doing my thing. Um, you know, I, w- I was embraced, and if I wasn't embraced, I didn't know it. I was too young, and, and I'm sure my dad probably protected me from a lot of stuff that may have been happening or being said. Right. It's that, that joy of youth and being naive, which is right. uh, what we wish all people could kind of keep a hold on, <laughs> right. especially with these days. It, it, tell me this, Katrina. When do you feel like you you kind of realized or recognized something as it relates to race was it was it in high school was it in college was it when i mean you know on the pro tour because i mean you're from chicago so you know you shy town strong so i'm just curious to to know when if you know when something kind of presented itself to you as hey wait a minute i'm being treated differently yeah you know i think i think i was you know my my story is different because i was treated different because of the sport that i played Mm -hmm. um you know, because I was in tennis, I, I was automatically treated different because I was different right. um, and because I was winning. So, you know, people love you when you're when you're the best. And, <laughs> right. That's the truth. And coaches always taught me. I, I remember early on, um, I used to complain about having, you know, having to play the number one seed early on. And he said, well, the only way that you can change that is that you become the number one seed. So, you know, in a way, it was like, oh, okay, all right. So I worked, you know, I worked hard. I accomplished that. And I was like, okay, that works for me. Um, but I, I think the first instance where, and I, and I never cried racism or, or bigotry or anything in my, in my junior career until mm-hmm. I was a senior in high school. I was a young senior. And, um, you know, I was 16 and... We had an event, it was called the USCA National Indoors, which was the event that all of the college coaches attended, and that's where they did their recruiting uh, for college. And so I was a senior graduating and, and looking to go to schools. So you know, I, I, Northwestern was always in the back of my mind. It was in our backyard, basically. I, I watched the school growing up um, on television and, and saw some of the teams practicing at the club that I was practicing at. But... I was like, it's cold in Chicago. I'm going to UCLA, USC. I'm going somewhere. 
you know, they were all top 10 schools and I was top 10 in the country. And I'm like, yeah, bet I'm going, I'm going, I'm going somewhere warm. Right. And, right. You no, know, I'm at the tournament and no one, no one's coming up to me. There's not one college coach that approaches me. They're approaching the, the girls I just beat, but they're not wow. talking to me. And I'm sitting there going, what the heck is going on? I'm like, this is so weird. But yeah. yeah my Northwestern coach kind of over in the corner, just kind of nodding like, it's okay. Um, and I didn't understand what she was meant. And basically she was keeping me to herself. Um, you know, this is pre-internet days, right? This is, right. And so they're looking at your age to determine what year you're in. And I was a first year 18 and under. So there's no way that I'm a senior, right? Right. So long story short, I, you know, I looked back and I said, you know, I wonder is it because I'm black that no one's interested and and wanted me for their team and and i kind of didn't give it a second of thought after that but it, it did impact me then um obviously i went to northwestern and as soon as i signed the letter of intent and i guess it was probably across the wire uh back then i must have gotten every phone call and every letter from every university in the nation <laughs> me a scholarship but you know i'm loyal when i make a commitment to someone or something uh, I don't turn back. I committed. I made signed my letter of intent to Northwestern, and that's where I was going. And I used the motivation of being ignored. Uh, I used that when I played those teams um, in competition to show the coach what they lost that on. So you know, you just have to you have to use negative energy and turn it into positive um, for for your best benefit. And that's how I dealt with it. So we know that you had a very successful career at Northwestern, I think two-time All-American. I think you won the doubles championship one year. We know that a lot of professionals sometimes skip the whole college experience. Uh, how was that for you? And what are your thoughts on college leading to a professional career? Okay, so first of all, my mom and dad were teachers. That was not an option. <laughs> let me, let's, keep it, let's keep it 100 here. That was not an option. Um, you know, I always wanted to go to college. I, I, love, I love people. I love being around people. I love competition. I love other sports. So I wanted to be a part of that. Um, you know, my brothers went to small schools, and, and, and so I never got to understand what it would be like to be at a big sports school. And, um, but I never thought about turning pro early. See, back in the day, you didn't really understand what that meant. I, I didn't grow up in that environment where you're watching um, all the stats to understand what turning pro really meant. I knew I played, you know, I had the fortune of playing um, the USCA pro circuit events every summer, um, being on a USCA team where the USCA was paying for me and other girls uh, to go around the country, you know, during the summer and play these tournaments where I was earning points. But I didn't really understand then that what I was earning points for was to really go onto the, to the tour, main, the main, mainstream later on. Uh, in the second year, I started to figure it out. But had I not had those opportunities to be on the USA collegiate team, I wouldn't have been able to afford to go week to week all summer to play tournaments, to, to gain points, to gain a ranking, to help me on that track. So going back to college every, every fall or going back to class every fall was normal. My college coach actually thought I was going to turn pro after my freshman year. She thought I was good enough. It had not even crossed my mind. I knew I wanted to, but I did know I wanted to go to school for at least two years and see what 
that meant. And after winning the NCAAs in my sophomore year, uh, I, I did know it was time at that point. Uh, I think I was going to be returning three in the nation in, in singles. And I got permission from my coach and the athletic director. Uh, Northwestern's on quarters. So we had three, three, three quarters or three trimesters, if you will, uh, of classes. And I asked if I could take the fall quarter off uh, to continue to play those tournaments as an amateur, meaning I don't take the prize money. You could take enough. You can take the money to, for reimbursement of your expenses, but not to, to profit on them. So I knew it wasn't going to cost me anything, and I could make, I knew I would win enough to cover my expenses. But I was winning. My ranking kept going up. And at the end of that quarter, you know, I had a direct entry into the Australian Open in 1988. And then I said, now it's time to turn pro. So having that conversation, uh, you know, with the coach and the AD, um, they were thrilled. Having that conversation with my parents was a completely different conversation. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, they, they got it. They understood it. They knew that they had sacrificed a lot and given me the opportunities to, to do just this. And I got their blessings and I never looked back. So, you know, after 12 years on the tour, my body breaking down, uh, you know, it was time to do something different. And, and I became a national coach to try to help the next generation. But, uh, you know, it was college tennis, I think, is important for, for anybody. I think it's important for you to grow and develop as an individual first, to mm -hmm. understand how to socialize and communicate with peers, because tennis, the junior competitive world can be a very isolated place for some of these young kids, depending on the, the, the temperament of their parents, where that's all they're doing. You know, I had I had outlets. I had a large family, not my siblings, but cousins. You know, we did a lot of family events and 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 keeping my life, uh, you know, on the ground and keeping my head out of out of the skies because you know every other weekend I'm I'm winning tournaments. But you know, you need to go to college to one further your education, not just uh, academically, but to further your education as an individual uh, and, and learning how to communicate with people and dealing with adversity um, and, and challenges so that when you go out into the tennis world, into the professional world, you know, you're thrown in as an adult. And so when you had these young kids that were turning pro at 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, they're, they become their own CEOs when they go out on the tour because now everything that they do uh, impacts their income. If they win, their income is going up. If they're losing, they're not getting much income. But they've got to pay for their expenses. They've got, you know, many of them automatically are supporting their family. And it's a lot of pressure. So you have to, you need, you need that college experience to understand how to deal with the pressures of life. That's some really, really good <laughs> advice. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your professional career. I'd uh, like to hear about what your experience was like on the WTA tour. Uh, specifically, I'd like to hear about who maybe was the, you know, one of the toughest people for you to play, who was that person you hated to see in the draw <laughs> and kind of why. And then also, I'd like to hear you talk about that 1988 Wimbledon, where um, in singles and doubles, you had an amazing tournament. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, for lack of a better word, I was pretty cocky. 
So <laughs> attitude going out on tour, like, you know, I'm, I'm the baddest thing that's ever walked out here. Um, and, and I took that attitude into everything that I did in every match. I didn't care who I was playing. Um, I felt that I was going to win every match, whether I did or not. But at least I had that confidence in myself, which, which you have to, because that's your profession. Um, but what I didn't take, what I didn't take into my professional career immediately was understanding the importance of being physically fit to be mentally fit. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I had my sophomore, probably 15, 20 that I took out on the tour with me and I continued to, uh, indulge in, um, in my, uh, high carbon carbohydrate beverage. <laughs> Well, after a hot a hot day or what have you, and, and didn't really understand um, until later that that wasn't going to fly. So yeah, yeah. So you know that that was the challenge with that, but but also I was I was fortunate enough to surround myself with people like Zena Garrison and Lori McNeil and Willis Thomas and John Wilkerson. Uh, Zena and I were doubles partners. Uh, my first few years, Lori and I played together when Zena wasn't at a tournament and, and she and I were at a tournament, et cetera. So, you know, I've got two top 10 players basically by my side and, and I'm trying to learn from them. So that was extremely helpful. So when you talk about going into uh, Wimbledon in my rookie year, you know, and I'm serving volleying and chipping and charging. I mean, this is right up my alley. And I played on a, a basketball court in wintertime in the early days of, of my junior career where the ball is just skidding. So I wasn't trying to be on the baseline. So grass suited my, my, my game style tremendously. I also grew up playing on carpet courts in, in Chicago area, uh, indoor carpet, which were fast as well. So grass suited my, my game. Again, I had the cocky attitude. Uh, you know, I just knew I was going to win Wimbledon single. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'll be a Wimbledon champion. Um, <laughs> but you know, I had some great results, great wins. Beat you know a couple couple seeds along the way to 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 meet Chris Ever, and I'm up five three in the first set. And I look up at the board, and it says five three Ad- five Adams three Ever Lloyd. I'm like, oh snap! <laughs> <laughs> it was five four. Then it was five all, and I'm like, oh, snap. So, you know, I did win the first set, um, three all in the second set, and then by that time, I had expended all the energy that I had, um, ran out of gas, and, and the real Chris Everett showed up, and, you know, I think it was 3-0 and after that. Um, but what an experience. And then Zena and I, you know, getting to the semifinals. And, and I, I will say that we should have won that tournament. We should have beaten the team that we lost to in the semis. And it was no way in hell I was going to lose to Graf and Sabatini in, in doubles. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> in the finals. Um, but we didn't get there, and I never had that opportunity. Uh, but, yeah, it was a great experience, and it's something that I always look back on and, and cherish um, it's, it's a great welcome into the sport. I hadn't, you know, I won my first Grand Slam singles t- uh, matches at Wimbledon. I lost first round of Australian Open, first round of, at Rowan Garros. Um, so it was, it was very successful for me and, and uh, you know, something that I took, took with me um, throughout my career. Man, that's incredible. 
That is so, so awesome. So who was that player that you hated to play against? <laughs> um, you know, it was players like Chrissy. I only played Chrissy once, but any anybody that was steady on the baseline that, you know, had, you know, perfect passing shots that could run down every shot. Um, you know, those are the types of players that, that – challenged me or that I just didn't even want to go on the court with because and unfortunately it was because I was never in the best shape oh. so when you know my year two or year three when I really started doing what I was supposed to do and knew that I could last as many hours as I needed to then mentally you become stronger and, right. and, and and more efficient and, and a better player. And, and that's when it happened. But, you know, the players I love to play against were the top players because I wanted to play Steffi. I wanted to play Martina. Never got to play Martina in singles. Played her in doubles a lot of times. Played Steffi a couple times in singles. And, you know, just lost a break in each set or a tie break um, because I knew that I had a game that could, that could challenge her. in. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I've, I've beaten a couple players that were three in the world throughout my career. I've lost to players that were three in the world throughout my career. But uh, it was, you know, Helena Sokova is probably one of the best matches I ever played that I lost. Um, and the score was 6-6-6. Six, six, and six. But mm -hmm. you're talking about intense, athletic, crafty. Uh, you know, it's a match I'll never forget. Uh, Virginia sends a Boca Raton one year. And, and... You know, you look back on those. Now, American player I used to love to play was Patty Fendick. Because oh, Patty, okay. Patty was athletic. Patty was cocky. I was a little more cocky than Patty. So <laughs> I, you know, I always had the upper hand on that. I drove her crazy because I was like, there's no way in hell I'm losing to you, no matter what. <laughs> and, and we'd have some, you know, drop dead, drop dead, dog out, three set matches every time. And I could just get under her skin. And I could just laugh about it walking to the baseline. But, you know, it would be 6'3", 6'4", 7'5", and a third. It didn't matter. But I, you just have that. Those are the matches that you just know. I was like, I don't care what happens. I'm not losing. Um, and those are, those are some, some fun days um, in playing those type, of, uh, those type of players. But the players that I didn't like were, you know, the ones that were your, your baseliners. Um, that just had these patterns that could pick you apart. I like playing the more athletic players because then I felt that we were on equal terms going in there. Right, right. So Katrina, you 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 talk about the three sets. So that was like three out, best three out of five. And of course, they've now changed that to now best two out of three. Kind of, what's your mindset on that when the ladies' tour changed to to only playing two out of uh, best two out of three sets? No, we've always played two out of three. Oh, you play? Okay, okay. We always play two out of three, and, and the men complained that we shouldn't have equal prize money because they were playing three out of five. Gotcha. So, and the women said, yeah, we'll play three out of five. Uh, you know, the organizers and the TV were like, nah, we're good. We're, we're gonna <laughs> so it was like, what's up? You want us to play three out of five? We'll play three out of five. It's just a, it's just a matter of, 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 of training differently. So right. the women used to play... I think they played three or four years, their, their year-end championships, which were the Virginia Sims championships. That's what I remember, yeah. They played three out of five sets. And I think only one match actually went to five. 
Uh, they may have had two years that went to four sets and the other years were three. Uh, but yeah, so we've always played the best of three, three sets. Gotcha, gotcha. And talking about, you know, the, 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 the folks that you partnered with. So you talked about Zena, you talked about Lori. Very interested to understand kind of how, what that connection looked like for you when you were playing. Because I know when we interviewed Zena, she talked about how she would, you know, throw get-togethers and she would get her cook on. And <laughs> I mean, she, you know, I, it was, it's so awesome to hear the camaraderie of the sisters on the tour. So wanted to kind of get your thoughts about that and just kind of how was that connection when you were playing as an active player? Yeah, so Zena and Lori grew up together, so they already had that sisterhood, if you will. I was yeah. fortunate enough to go down and train with them um, on occasion while I was in college, like over Christmas break. Uh, I spent a couple weeks down there with them and, and really got to know them. Obviously, as a junior, I, I admired them um, from afar. They were a couple, few years older than me, so if we were at the same national tournaments that had multi, uh, multiple age groups, I would get to watch them, or I watched them, you know, the ATA Nationals when they were playing like the women's event, and I was probably playing 14s or 16s, I don't know. Um, so I always knew them and knew who they were. I mean, Zeta was the number one junior in the world in 1981. Right. So, so you admired that success. Well, I admired that success. Um, and so when I had the opportunity to actually go and train with them, I'm like, oh my God. And let me tell you something. You're talking about being out of shape, coming <laughs> and throwing up every day, running the bayou with Lori. That was painful. Um, but we, you know, when I got on tour, Zena really took me under her wing. We started playing doubles. We sh I shared her coach because they knew I really couldn't afford to have my own coach going out there. And and so we were a family. And so, you know, you get to Wimbledon. And, and so now I fall into what their experiences are at these Grand Slams. We go to Australia and they, they have some friends that they have been, families that they've been friends with for years. And we go over to their home for dinner. And, you know, we get to Wimbledon or we get to Paris and the same situation happens. So there was always a family environment that was presented at least one day during the tournament. And then we get to Wimbledon where we are renting our own homes. On the middle Sunday, you have off. So we used to have Soul Food Sunday. Um, and, and so, yeah, Zena was cooking. My mom would come a few years. My mom is cooking, you know, and everybody who was Black was showing up at our door. Even <laughs> the, the, space of the, the space was for 10 people and we'd have 20. So it didn't matter. I mean, you know, when Venus and Serena came on, you know, Venus, Serena, and their mom would come come to dinner on those Sundays. So it was a great it was a great atmosphere, a great environment. But you know, at the end of the day, it's still competitive. Uh, we do have to play against one another. We are trying to beat the brains out of each other when we have to play each other, and we always used to tease each other to say, you know what? Why is it that we play our best tennis against each other, but we won't go out there with the same level of intensity when we're playing, you know, our other counterparts? Uh, which is, a, which is a, you know, it's a good question, right? Absolutely. What is, it, what is it that you're trying to prove when we should be trying to prove that every single day? So it was enjoyable and it was a great opportunity and an experience to have the camaraderie um, with the other black players on tour because it you know, there were a handful of us, or less, depending on which year it was. Well, I tell you, as impressive of a professional career as you've had, um, I think 
probably one of the things or the thing that I respect about you most is how you transitioned from being a player to your post-playing career. Um, and I think we see this all the time in, in, in all sports, right? Players often struggle with when it's time to hang up those cleats or to hang up the racket, you know, what do we do next? Because this is what we've done our entire life. Right. We don't know what to do. And you have had one of the most impressive post-playing careers that I can think of. For sure. Can you just walk us through how that all happened? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I can't say that it was planned. Um, it seems like it's the story of my life that I kind of stumble on stuff. Um, you know, when I stopped playing, I think I mentioned I was a national coach and I was working with our uh, aspiring young players, many that were black, uh, the Jamea Jacksons, Shabisha Robinsons uh, of the world that did really well from juniors going to the pros. But I, I, I realized that I was spending more time on the court as a coach that I was as a player and I was retiring because my body was breaking down anyways. Um, and then we had some, we had some restructuring at the USTA, uh, where, you know, they got rid of all the national coaches and started from scratch. So it was a good opportunity for me to, to sit still. I threw my rackets in the closet for three months. I don't think I never not had a racket in my hand for not even three weeks since I was seven. And, um, and, and so the reflection was, what what am I good at? What do I want to do? And I started thinking about, hey, I studied communications in college. I've always wanted to commentate. I had been a guest commentator at uh, some of the tournaments while I was on tour. You know, where you, you step in for three or four games and then out. But at least I had that experience. So I pursued being a commentator uh, first and foremost and reached out to Tennis Channel, who had not yet... Uh, they were forming, they were not yet on air. So when they, you know, I told them they needed me more than I needed them at the time. Venus and Serena were number one and two in the world. And uh, you needed a face that reflected the players on the court. You needed someone that could interview them, that they would be comfortable having a candid conversation with, and, and who could really talk about their game and their thought process on the court, because I am them. And um, as, a black, as a black woman, and so I convinced them of that, and I got the nod. And when, when Tennis Channel flipped their switch in April of 2003, I was the first, I was the face that you saw alongside Barry Tompkins from um, mm -hmm. right. So, So it was exciting. It was a great opportunity. I, I did probably 10 straight years of doing that before I got into deep into the business side of, of tennis with the USTA to where I didn't have as much time to be uh, in the booth. And, you know, getting involved with the USTA as a volunteer, first having worked for them, I then started to understand that the USTA was more than just a USTA tournament or USTA ranking, because that's all people know. They don't really know who the USTA is and what we do. That right. we're the national governing body of tennis, that, you know, we're providing funds all across the, the country to, uh, you know, to put rackets in people's hands and grow tennis and promote it. And you don't know, you know, I didn't realize that or think about it, but many of the opportunities that I had were because I was on a USCA funded junior team or a USCA funded college team that afforded me to do what I did. 
So in learning these things and wanting to learn more, I got more involved on the volunteer side, uh, was elected to the board. And, and as I got deeper and deeper, I decided at one point that I wanted to be the leader of the organization and pursued it. And, and I had that opportunity, which was typically a two-year term. I ended up with four year, two, two year terms from four years. I think I had an impact on the organization. You know, one of the things that, that I grew to love about the USCA at that time was, was their approach to diversity and inclusion and really making it a core initiative of the organization to do better, to be more diverse and, and to provide more funding to the diverse players and communities. And I wanted to be a part of that. And in knowing that I came up through public parks, tennis, juniors, high school, college, professionals, coach, there's nobody in the game that I didn't know or did, didn't respect me. And I knew that I could use that platform to uh, further the mission of the USCA, but also to, to further ex the exposure of myself and the opportunities that it will provide uh, to be able to sit here and have this conversation with you guys. Absolutely. It, I mean, that's so tremendous. I, it's funny because I know both Bryce and I have mentored in our career. And that's one of the things that we try to explain to our, our mentees is self-promotion. You've got to, you have to promote yourself, utilize your connections, utilize networking, because again, those things come into play as you're moving forward. And that's just, it's so inspirational to hear Katrina. That's, that's, that's really, really fantastic. Um, talk to me about as far as as, as the, the, the CEO and president of the USTA, as you were taking on that role and you were sort of looking at the structure, what were your thoughts as it, as it, reflect, as it relates to people of color across the organization? Did you feel that there was good representation? Did you feel there was lacking? And if you did feel it was lacking, was there something that you tried to do in order to, again, promote and or push that agenda forward? Well, I think, you know, as I sat on, uh, as I chaired my first board and I had one other person of color, I think Chanda was the only other black person on that particular board. I had, I had a pretty diverse board though, because meaning men, women, black, Asian, and Hispanic. Okay. Um, it was very diverse. And my, my number one initiative when I took office was to grow our Hispanic base of players uh, in America, the fastest growing demographic. And, you know, if we don't bring people from these diverse Latino backgrounds into our sport, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to, we're going to be lost. Um, right. we had a great, obviously our champions were all black. You know, the numbers were growing in the professional ranks, you know, and, and with, with, Sloan and Madison being in the finals of 2016 and, you know, wow, what an opportunity, right? Right. Absolutely. So we're 2017, but it's, um, you look at that and, and you're saying, okay, we're doing great here. Our NJTL programs are, are growing, they're, they're soaring. And so how do we get other diverse backgrounds in the game? So that was really my focus. Um, when, you know, when I look at the personnel, uh, did we have, you know, we only had two, when I came on, we had one, uh, one person of color, one black 
person that was on the senior suite uh, who was a chief diversity and inclusion officer. And then I was a part of, of hiring Martin Blackman, who is our general manager of player development. And we all know what a great job he's done. And, and then I was responsible for bringing another senior um, staff a female on board, really two, but one, one replaced another female and then we brought a new one on for another role. So, you know, I was, I tried to make sure that I was part of spreading the, the love of diversity uh, within our senior staff. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, our main goal was growing the players on the court, uh, growing the number of diverse players on the, on the court. And, Sometimes you got to deal with the, the, the hand that you're dealt with and, and, and make the best of it. Uh, but it was, you know, there was not one time that I didn't, that I know, I know that I represented our culture first and foremost very well. I know that my intent and my goals uh, supported what we need to have more diversity in our sport overall. Um, and that representation, I think, inspired so many people that would not otherwise watch television, I mean, watch tennis or, or think about getting in the sport, whether as a player or as a profession, because I try to tell people, you know, you can be in tennis and not be a professional tennis player. We all need lawyers and, and accountants and marketers and advertisers and IT people and et cetera. Get in the sport of tennis. If you love tennis, if you grew up playing tennis, you know, try to get into the business of tennis, whether it's through manufacturers, whether it's through USTA organizations um, or what have you. There, there are opportunities there, and we don't have enough diversity across all of these platforms on the business side, and that's what I would like to see change in our sport. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and Katrina, as president, being, being an African-American female, did you encounter a lot of challenges as it relates to things that you would bring forward to try and address those types of things across the USTA structure? You know, it's a very good question. I think there's always, probably no matter who you are and what organization, you're always going to have some pushback with ideas or, or initiatives. Um, because at the end of the day, you've got to rely on other people to go out and make it happen. So. Uh, our initiatives, I think, were pretty strong at the national level, but then we had to rely on our sections that are really the ones out there pushing our programs uh, downward into the communities. And, and so there, there's always challenges there. Uh, you know, I can speak from experience and understanding why we need to do certain things, but if, if you've never experienced it, you'll, you'll never see it through my eyes. Um, you know, I'm forced to see it through your eyes because it's the world I'm forced to live in. Right. But you never live in my world, so you'll never understand what, what I'm seeing and why I see things the way that I do. Um, and, and that's a hard message to get across. And, you know, when you look at current events in the world right now, it's, it's evident that people don't see you or don't hear you the way that you should be heard. They, they see you, ex, you know, externally. Um, and never bother to understand you internally. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, in going, I guess, talking more about your 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 role in 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 the USTA, um, I'm going to actually jump a little bit and just as far as 
your tenure goes, what were you most proud of as it relates to what you delivered in that role as CEO and president? Uh, I think it was, you know, the team that I obviously worked with, uh, we got a lot accomplished in first building, you know, from, from scratch, our facility down in Orlando, the USC national campus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, putting a roof over Arthur Ashe and, and restructuring, finishing the strategic transformation out at the USCA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center from all the field courts being redone, building a new grandstand stadium, building a new Louis Armstrong stadium, you know, the roof over Ash and all the other elements that people are enjoying out there today to have been part of that, uh, you know, is, is an amazing feeling and an accomplishment. Um, you know, I think the other thing is obviously being the face of the organization uh, getting buy-in from people that we probably never got buy-in before, getting the people interested in playing the game or or just watching it as a fan that may not have been fans before. Uh, you know, I mean, we we were very successful with our U.S. Open, um, but that's a team. You know, that's a team effort. There's so many people that are involved in, in running the U.S. Open that you know you can point to your chief revenue officer or commercial officer who's bringing in all the sponsorship, or you can point to the chief of professional tenants who's managing all the players and, you know, our marketing is promoting. There's just so many, there's so many elements, um, you know, and lawyers that are putting all these things together. Uh, it's a great team. And I think that's the way I'd love to, uh, you know, walk away in, in knowing that our, our team did what we needed to, to be successful and, and to make me uh, successful. And, um, you know, we'll see where we get, go from here. Right, right. And and Katrina, speaking of the U.S. Open, now we know <laughs> there are always some stars that come out to go and watch tennis at the U.S. Open. We've seen the likes of Gladys Knight and Kelly Rowland, and I believe we saw Beyonce and Jay-Z there. And I mean, interested to know if you or or, or I guess your team, do you focus in on any of that leveraging, if you will, that star power to promote and or push the, the, the sport of tennis? We do. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it goes both ways. And we have a team, we have a production team that actually manages uh, most of the superstars that, that come. Uh, you know, you see them in all the sponsor suites, uh, et cetera. So we, we try to utilize uh, their star power in promoting our game and to do PSAs for us. Along the way, you know, many of them are not just fans. They actually play recreationally or have a court in their backyard, et cetera. So, you know, I, I, I was fortunate or have been fortunate over the years to create relationships with, uh, you know, people like Mariska Hargitay, who I love. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, yes. And, you know, and, and it gotten her, her and others to support my Harlem Junior Tennis and Education program. Um, for the Alec Baldwins of the world. It's, there's so many other people that have been um, at the U.S. Open on an annual basis. But it, it's important to know that they are out there and, you know, they may have a tennis scene in one of their TV shows or, or movie shows or, or movies um, and films. And, and so that's, you know, that's, that's good PR for our sport, for us. Um, but we're happy to have them. Um, and I think, you know, they're all most of them are pretty good ambassadors for for the sport of tennis and for the USCA. So I have a question. Was there anything that 
you did not get a chance to accomplish while you were in your role, something that you're hoping that still will be addressed? Well, you know, I, I think in, in any industry, when you're a leader, um, particularly if you're of color and, and black in particular, you want to see your, your numbers grow, whether it's on your staff, uh, whether it's participation, et cetera. So, you know, in four short years, I can't, I can't accomplish that, but I would have loved to see numbers double from where they were. Doesn't mean that they're going to be equal or half to, to other groups, but at least to, to know that there's a large percentage and double is a big number, but to make, to, to really have a noticeable percentage of growth, uh, on staff and, or, uh, on the courts. Um, even, even from our advertising, et cetera, we did a very good job of making sure that any, um, advertisement that went out and marketing had diverse people in them, that it wasn't just all white or all black or all Hispanic that, you know, cause it's important for you to see yourself in an advertisement, right? Cause right. if you're right. on there, you're like, oh, wow, that looks pretty cool. Um, yeah, I want, I want to try that. And so I, I think I did a really good job of making sure and working with the chief diversity and inclusion officer and marketing that all of our collateral had diverse images in them so that anyone could see themselves in our sport, whether it was wheelchair, uh, adaptive, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, you know, it didn't matter. We wanted to make sure that everybody was represented. So I think I accomplished that. Um, but would, you know, would obviously love to see, uh, more success in those areas. Now, Katrina, you talked about sort of the marketing and everything, and this is actually a question that our producer CJ, uh, wanted us to make sure we asked. You <laughs> so you, I, you be blinged out, you be having them diamonds and they are, I, they are fantastic. <laughs> I mean, well, you I look good. You know how it is. So right. I Right? You know, Come on, speak on it. Speak on it. Yeah, well, you know, year one, um, you know, year one, you don't really know what you're getting into. You know every year what you see and on TV and preparing for it or what have you. And year one, um, you know, I was dressed very nicely every day. And, you know, in the finals weekend, I, you know, I had on nice dresses or what have you. But I, I realized the stage, I recognized the stage that, how big that stage was and, yeah. mm -hmm. was and, and the images that come from it and, and what and who I truly represented. So I had to make sure that I was like, you know, you know, represent. Yes. Um, so I was fortunate enough the next few years, uh, Ralph Lauren is uh, one of our main sponsors. So I was dressed by Ralph Lauren um, for those finals weekends. Uh, and I had a friend who actually, uh, uh, owns a jeweler, a jewelry shop, a jewelry store that dressed me in my diamonds for my last <laughs> Those diamonds were on loan. <laughs> right on, right on. But, but brother, it came off well, man. I was blinging, I was shining. It wasn't yes. tasteful. It was tasteful. Oh, yeah. Um, but it brought, it brought, I think what it did is it for me, it, it elevated the importance of the occasion. So this is my red carpet. This is an opportunity for our, our sport to shine. 
And, um, you know, if you're talking about my outfit or my jewelry or my haircut or my speech, you know, you're talking about me. And so that right. brought awareness to uh, everybody that this is a this is a powerful black woman that's standing here and that's representing our sport. Absolutely, and you and you carried that with such class. Oh, it, it just absolutely. was great to see, and just just know that there are a lot of people that are appreciative of that image you put in front of the world. That that was just great. Um, I am going to put you on the spot though, real quick, <laughs> because we know that you have unique insight. What do you think our chances are of seeing the U.S. Open this year? Uh, there's, a, there's a press release that's coming out, announcement on Wednesday, and you'll find out. Oh, okay. Right. Right. <laughs> there we go. There you go. And not, there you no, go. It's, this is an unprecedented year in, in so many, from so many vantage points um, or disadvantage points for us. But, um, and I'm talking about us brothers and sisters. But, right. um, you know, with, with the COVID pandemic, um, you know, there are challenges and there are a lot of things that are going into place to make sure that you can provide a healthy environment um, for everybody that's involved. You know, you've got a, the discussions of fans, no fans. You know, you have to have medical approval. You have to have government approval. Uh, right. the, the governor of New York has to approve, you know, and, 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 and stamp, stamp of approval to say, yes, uh, tennis can happen. Now, we know that he gave the um, go-ahead for a lot of the professional uh, professional leagues to, to start to practice a few weeks ago, and then leagues are starting to gear up. So we are very optimistic um, of getting the approval, and we'll find out next week. Awesome. That, that is good news to hear. Yes. Uh, and so let's hit one more hot topic then. I know there's been a lot of conversation about whether the ATP and the WTA should merge. Um, interested in your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, you know, uh, I think it's great conversation. It's not the first time the conversation has come up. Now, I sat on the WTA Players Board for many years, as well as the WTA Tour Board for, for several years while I was playing. And, you know, you always want your independence. I mean, when I look back to what Billie Jean King and, and her peers did um, almost 50 years or 50 years ago for the original nine, but almost 50 years ago for the WTA and forming the tour, uh, it's, 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 we've come a long way in, in what we've accomplished. And, but over those years, there's been a lot of over, overlap now with the men and women. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the players together, uh, one plus one equals three. Right. Goes yeah, yeah. to the men having their tournament, the women having their tournament. But when they come together, it equals three. Um, sponsors are more engaged. Viewers are more engaged. And there's no reason why, not to say that every tournament should be combined. I don't believe in that. I do think that, you know, you want to be able to have separate, smaller events around the world in different cities. Uh, but I do think, for clarity, that there, it's a great conversation um, long-term to, to figure out if the sport can come together and that the sport can benefit from, from being one as opposed to the two separate tiers, tours. And each tour was created for 
for different reasons. You know, the Association of Tennis Professionals, which is the ATP, uh, when it was formed, it was for, you know, it had its own purpose, as was the WTA um, in 72. So um, I think, I think you, you know, when you have the top players start to speak out and say, why not? People start to listen. So it's all about the messenger. Um, you know, whoever's bringing the message, if you're weak and no one has, no one respects you, or they just think you're in it for yourself, uh, as we all know very well in, in our world that we live in, mm-hmm. we, we can bring we can bring the same message, but I'm not powerful enough. But if Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal say, you know what, it's time that the men and women join. Oh yeah, you know we. Can do that. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. but I think the conversation is, is starting to get people to think about and at the end of the day it's a business and, and we have to learn how to start to, to run more efficiently um, to have the success the true success that, that our sports should have absolutely I mean I, we laugh because I mean that's just the platform that Billie Jean King has always promoted and so it was just hilarious to me that you know, the minute Roger Frederick comes out talking about, hey, I think this is a good idea. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's <laughs> well, been out here, y'all. Come on now. Billy's been preaching, preaching it for decades. She started the World Team Tennis for the mere fact that men and women could play together on the same team, on the same court, et cetera. That has been her mantra from day one. Exactly. So I think she's delighted to finally hear some of the top men step up. Um, Billy is very well respected in our community. And I think um, she's had the conversations or that Roger and those guys have even reached out to her to have a conversation, um, you know, which is, which is great because you got to start somewhere and, and we'll, we'll see where, where it leads. But, you know, again, you, you're talking about uh, years away from doing it because of legal obligations that you have with contracts for different tournaments, different promoters, different this, different that. And, uh, and, and the, you know, I, I want to find out where it's going. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and Katrina, speaking of, you know, just relevance and, and, and setting the standard and, and the image goes, I kind of wanted to ask you a bit more about Venus and Serena. Yeah. I mean, we, we know that they have just been trailblazers as it relates to this generations of tennis. Um, so wanted to kind of get your insight and perspective on really the importance of the role that they have played in the game, just in regards to people of color, women, equal pay. I mean, just across the board, talk, 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 talk to us about the impact that you have seen and or felt as it relates to those two sisters being on the tour. Well, I mean, I've watched the, I literally watched these sisters grow up and, yeah. uh, sisters but sisters yes, um, yes, and, yes. You know, and how they have evolved and matured and, and and been successful both on and off the court um and they've always come to the platform with a message um from day one um and and so i've admired that you know their first message is that we're champions and we're going to do what it takes to be the best uh and they did that one and two in the world at the same time who does that as sisters um, right. You know, they've had to withstand more racism than anybody that I know in our sport. 
and you know they've endured it they've overcome it but they weren't afraid to speak out against it and and so they have utilized their platforms uh to tell their stories and and to get their messages out there and you know and to prove that they weren't just about tennis that they're business women so you know they got criticized when they were out finishing high school and getting college degrees and masters and and starting their businesses um that they should have been playing more tournaments why you know yeah, yes, Serena probably could have won 10 more Grand Slams if she had only focused on tennis, but look what she's accomplished by not. Right, exactly. And, and look at, look at the, the health issues that she's had. Imagine if she did go full core with just tennis and not get into the business side. She might have burned out 10 years earlier and not be here today to talk about, you know, tying or breaking, breaking tying a record. So, right. you know, you have to applaud them for the messages and the platforms and not being afraid to stand out, um, step out and stand out um, for and speak for so many equal causes. You know, Venus was a big advocate for, advocate for equal prize money back in the day and, and, and really getting Wimbledon to agree um, to be, you know, to get, have equal prize money. So it's a, uh, it, you know, they, it warms my heart to see what they've accomplished. So they've been critical um, in, in being advocates and, and standing up for what's right and using their platforms. Uh, they have been role models for so many young players coming up. You know, when, when, you, when Sloan and Madison were in the finals of the U.S. Open a couple of years ago, they talked about how, you know, one of them had Venus on their wall and one of them had Sloan on their wall. And you know, they were their motivation and they continue to inspire. And you look at Coco Goss and, and how, how she talks about how they've inspired her and that, you know, at 14, 13, 14, she's having the opportunity to train with them and, and, and learn from them and, and be, and now, you know, she looks up as them as aunties, but she's a peer, you know, she's right, out right. here competing against them. And, um, so yeah, they, I, 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 I love those girls, ladies, women. Um, they've accomplished so much, uh, and you know it's. And you know if I if I pick up the phone and call, they answer, um, and, and and that that says a lot. Well, my question is, and this is, I I, I sometimes get very frustrated over this. <laughs> is is Richard Williams going to get his due? Because that brother has done something that nobody. nobody in the history of tennis has ever done. And not only did he do it, he predicted it. <laughs> exactly. He said, y'all, <laughs> you, know, you know this is going to happen, so right? <laughs> when is he going to get his love? I, right? I, I think he will. Uh, you know, it, this is a political world. Um, and no one, can't, no one can deny what he accomplished and what he right. set out to do. Uh, with as little as he had, little knowledge mm -hmm. he had of the sport or where, wherewithal, but he got it done. So, yes, he will get his due. I know he was inducted into the ATA Hall of Fame maybe two years ago. Um, I think he's already in the Black Tennis Hall of Fame. So the next spot, the next place would be the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Um, and, if, you know, if he, if he gets on the ballot, then I don't see why he won't. Um, you know, as a contributor, not as a player. They have the, they have different categories, but he uh, you gotta love Richard. 
Oh, yeah, yes, you do. Yes, you do. In, in the words of Frank Sinatra, he did it his way. Yes, he did. <laughs> That's right. Yes, he did. <laughs> I also want to go back to something you mentioned in the beginning of the interview. You you spoke about your book that's yeah, coming out yeah. in March of 2021. And to our listeners, please go out and pre-order this book. We yes. want to support Katrina, and we know that there's some good stuff in there. Um, we know that the subject, the key subject in your book is, is centered around leadership. Can you talk to us about why you were so inspired to write a book and that particular subject? Well, I think it's more to, uh, to acknowledge that, you know, as a professional athlete, that you're not only leaders on the court or in your sport, but you're, you're leaders off the court. And I think my story is, is very unique. Uh, the subtitle is Making a Difference and Being Successful as the Only One. And, and I think that will resonate with tons of readers, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's gender, whether it's religion, whether it's sexual orientation, whatever that might be, whatever that only one means to you, that you can find yourself in my story and hopefully learn from it. So, you know, when you own in the arena, that can be any environment and it can be a huge environment. But while you're in that arena, you know, the book really teaches you how to own so many other things um, throughout, your, throughout your journey. You know, owning the table that you are, are sitting at. You're not there because, don't just be at the table because you're different or they've invited you for whatever reason. Own the table while you're there. Right. And everything that you can to, to be the leader of that table going forward. You know, you want to own your legacy, you, your courage, your identity, your network. There's so many things in the book that it will teach you how to do it. And I use my journey through tennis to tell the story from the six-year-old, you know, sitting outside of the fence um, to the debacle of, of the 2018 U.S. Open finals of, of Serena and Osaka. Um, but and everything in between and how I use the, the lessons that I learned through the sport to prepare me for all of these different situations, opportunities, um, and, and tasks at hand. So, um, hopefully, you know, and it's not just a book for women. It's not just a book for, for people of color. It's a book for everybody, because I think more importantly for, for men that read it, really get to understand how we think or how we are viewed through our own eyes in certain situations to where you all can be more embracive and more inclusive of diversity of thought um, in many situations. Because at the end of the day, you know, if I'm trying to sit on your public board, only a man is going to get me there. Right. You, the men that are at the table, that are chairman of these boards that can invite me into your boardroom. It's you as a CEO that can hire me as a, as a senior staff person. So as we talk about our racial divide in America today, black people aren't going to solve racism. White people are going to solve racism because that stems from. So we have to recognize that we need each other in these environments to truly have a chance of being successful. 
And you know, and that makes me think about this piece that you recently pinned on the ITF's website. Um, I think it's called Don't Cheer For Me On Court If You Won't Cheer For Me Off Court. Right. You know, could you please speak about the message that you were sending in that piece? Well, I think it's important. You know, actually, I, I was listening to uh, uh, one of my colleagues and friends, Lisa Leslie, the other day. Um, and she was talking about, you know, when she's wearing the, you know, her... Olympic uniform. This is US, USA on it. You know, everybody, everybody's there supporting her and, and, and her friends and I mean, her teammates, et cetera. But, you know, when they're not wearing, wearing the uniform, um, they're just another person. And I started to think, I was like, yeah, you know, don't cheer for me on the court when, if you're not going to cheer for me off. Um, and it's, whether I'm playing on the court or whether I'm presenting, you know, the, at the finals of the U.S. Open, and then I come off the court and the next day and I'm not all, you know, glamored out and I'm walking by and I'm being disrespected and someone says, oh, that's the USDA president. Oh, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry. Come on. Uh -huh. Right. Right. Okay. So, and, 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 and that's where that comes from. And, and if you read deeper into it, you know, too often, I'm applauded for being articulate. What does that mean? <laughs> I so agree with you. Your white peers and colleagues, how articulate they were when they just made a presentation. No, but you're quick to tell a black person how articulate we were in our delivery, right? As if we're supposed to be anything less than. Um, right. Uh -huh. and, and, and when we're in the same rooms and you know, the, the, the one thing that anyone can, you know, being disrespectful, being disrespectful is, oh, I don't see you as black. I don't see color. <laughs> so what is that? Right? That's disrespectful. Because the first thing you see when I walk in a room is a black woman. So you can't tell me that you don't see me as black. So there's right. for mine, the connotation of a black person is very different and negative. Um, that preconceived notion that you have of black people. So you don't see me as black because I don't fit the description that's in your head of a black person. So, you know, so I think, you know, with Mr. Floyd's death, all these things, you really start to think back and reflect and you realize, you know what, I'm tired of, I'm tired of biting my, my tongue, throwing stuff under the rug. Mm -hmm. Right people's ignorance. I will be calling you out from here forward um, yes. because, because I'm tired and, it, and it's, it, it's disrespectful and, and, and they don't even know that they're disrespectful because they're clueless. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Agree completely. And I think we're seeing more and more and more of that just across the landscape. I mean, certain comments that are made and people focusing in more on the riots and looting. And it's just like, come on, folks stay focused on what the issue is. And that is the issue. So and thank you so much, Katrina, for, for that, uh, just your, your, your words there and, and your perspective. Because, I mean, a lot of folks just really, really need to, to hear that and to understand that. Um, and we're hoping that our listeners will definitely, uh, definitely get that as well. Um, wanted to just kind of come back to you and just ask, you know, we've, we've talked a ton. <laughs> and we've gotten a lot of really great insight from you and just wanted to know, is there anything else just in general that you want to share with our listeners? Uh, keep hope alive, brother. <laughs> <laughs>
You know, the, the fact that your your group is Brothers on Tennis, uh, I love it. And and it's, you know, this sport is for everyone. Um, we love this sport as black people just as much as everybody else. We have just as much fun. We probably have more fun because we, you know, we do a lot of uh, smack talking <laughs> and, and so forth and so on. But, um, you know, on the real, it's, it's really... Uh, Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully it's been enlightening. Hopefully uh, it brings more interest to the sport. I will always promote, promote the sport because the sport has given me everything that I've earned and learned. Um, and it has provided me the opportunity to, to meet and be with people like yourselves. And, um, and it's just a great, it's a great sport that's gonna teach you life skills to get you through life. Um, and so, you know, hopefully all our listeners Kids are playing the sport. You, know, you don't have to get in the sport to be a professional tennis player. Just get in the sport to learn the life skills of, of managing time and being more disciplined and, and building self-esteem. So when you come across these obstacles in life, you can pull on the skill set that you've learned through our sport to get you through and, and elevate you. And, and that's really why I continue to do what I do. So thank you so much for your time. And we want to thank you because as a reminder, we had an online poll. Uh, I think we had about five different people listed on the on the poll. That's right. Who should be our next interview on Brothers on Tennis? And you mm -hmm. were the winner. And so, listeners, we thank Miss Katrina Adams for for um, <laughs> providing your wish. <laughs> she she could have said no, but she did not. <laughs> so yeah, we really I, appreciate. I appreciate that. It, brothers. This, this is this has been great, and uh, you know, best of luck going forward. Thank you. So to the rest of our listeners, uh, we will continue to bring you exciting interviews and we should be having some tennis coming up soon. So we'll be able to get back to our regular format of talking about tennis and talking about what's happening on the courts. So we're going to take this moment to sign off. This is your boy Bryce. And this is your boy Isaac. And we are Brothers on Tennis. Everyone stay safe out there. Peace, brothers.